0: I'll do this fine. Yeah. So uh, let's open this time with a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your word. Uh, We thank you for the instructions that you left behind for us and for uh, giving us the ability to call out to you, to reach out to you uh, through our study and uh, through uh, through our prayers. And as we attempt to get into uh, another uh, piece of your scripture, I just ask that you are here with us today. Help us to hear what we need to hear, to learn what we need to know, so that we can learn and grow uh, during this time. These things I say in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so welcome to our Who's the Greatest Sermon series. So we, uh, me and the other elders, we kind of sat around and were thinking about, we want to give kind of a, a series that can capture people. Whether you are a Christian or not, we want to have something that's a little bit more, uh, engaging, uh, so we started out with the series that's called the Road to Calvary. Now, if you're a Christian, you'll understand that the Road to Calvary is leading to Calvary's Cross, which is where Christ was crucified. Uh, but if you don't know Calvary and you don't know that story, then that's not very catching. Something that is catching, though, is who's the greatest, because who's the greatest has a lot of connotation in a lot of different areas, and and so. We want to kind of capture some of that. And to be completely honest, uh, we all know the answer to this question. To make it more obvious, just look to the right in this screen back here, and you kind of know the answer to that. Um, but what I want to do is kind of look at, look at it from a more secular standpoint and see how the world uh, looks at greatness. Um, so today, I'm going to look at great greatness in the eyes of the Olympics. So... Who is the greatest Olympiad that ever lived? So to answer that question, uh, you have to kind of ask yourself, what makes an Olympic athlete great? Is it just the fact that they are talented uh, in their chosen sport? Um, is that enough? Or is it that they are uh, humanitarians and do things outside of the sport that help to show that the human side of, of them and that they're not just the machine that does the sport? Uh, or maybe you like the fact they're good at public relations, and when they're out speaking, um, they make you laugh, or they tell a compelling story that makes you think. Uh, maybe their their code of ethics and the morality is important because you want them to be good role models for future athletes. Uh, you know, throughout history, there have been a lot of great Olympic uh, athletes, uh, and as the sport has matured, uh, we've seen advances in technology that has uh, given us the ability to be stronger, better, faster. Uh, and so we might be challenged with the older athletes to, to meet the newer athletes, and people may, may uh, uh, have uh, opinions about that. But what we do know is when you look at Christ, he was the greatest back then. He's the greatest still today. So that is an unchanging thing. Christ was the greatest. But let's talk about Um, the Olympics. Uh, I was trying to figure out how I would know uh, who the greatest uh, Olympians uh, were, and so I just did some research and found this website that was curating all the different people's opinions of every great athlete. And they created a top ten list. I'll share with you the first five, because it take a while to get through ten. The first one, it's probably no surprise, but Michael Phelps. You know, this is an Olympic swimmer that in three, um, three Olympiads, he had... Uh, um, acquired 22 medals. So he's the most decorated of all of the Olympians of all time. So it would seem appropriate that people ranked him number one. If we move to number two, another impressive guy, Usain Bolt. Uh, He is the fastest recorded man that was ever timed. Uh, He's got uh, world records in the 200 meter and the 100 meter. And even when he competes with his teammates, he still holds world world records. In the 4x100, they have that world record. So number three, uh, it was a little surprising to me, this one. Number three was Michael Jordan. So Michael Jordan, you know, most people know him in basketball, not in the Olympics. And in fact, he only did two Olympics. In 1984, he was in the Olympics in college. And then in 1992, he was part of one of the most famous basketball teams in the Olympics, the Dream Team. But maybe it's what he does outside, like I mentioned before, that makes people appreciate him as an Olympic athlete. So for number four, we've got to take the clock back a few years to find this guy. This is Jim Thorpe. He was a Native American, and he was a gold medalist in the 1912 Pentathlon and Decathlon. So a few years back. Uh, but Jim Thorpe did more than Olympics. He was a professional American football player, professional baseball player, and a professional basketball player. Unheard of in today's world, right? He was an amazing athlete. And he won his, his gold medals, and then he lost his gold medals because in that time, uh, you had to be an amateur. And it was revealed that Jim Thorpe was a semi-professional baseball player two years before. Now, obviously, in today's world, Michael Jordan Um, he competed as a professional. So they actually returned those medals back to uh, Jim Thorpe 30 years after his death. And the last one is yet another basketball star. Uh, and This is LeBron James. So he took bronze in 1984, and then he took the gold in 2008 and 2012, and there's rumor that he wants to be part of the 2020 team that's going to Japan. So that's the top five. Now, for completion's sake, let me just uh, tell you these other five. Jesse Owens, Muhammad Ali, Steve Redgrave. He's a rower, in case you didn't know that. Uh, Carl Lewis and Michael Johnson. All of these are the greatest Olympiads. So next week, we're going to look at the greatest NBA uh, players. And the reason why is because Mike Mike DeBilzen is going to be preaching. Mike's a big NBA guy. So... So if you guys have any ideas on who you think is the greatest NBA player, I ask that you send a message to office at cccthailand.org. So we can compare your thoughts against what Mike thinks the greatest are, okay? We'll find out next week. So let's talk about the sermon for this week. We plan to cover a lot of ground today. In the previous sermons, um, the message team would tackle uh, a handful of verses, and then we'd do a deep dive into what was happening during that time, and how we can apply that knowledge uh, in our daily lives. Today, I'm going to cover chapters. I'm going to go through chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, we know that the chapters in Luke are big chapters. So I'm going to have to take uh, some pretty big swings at this content so we can get through it all. Uh, so let's get started with an overview of the chapters. I don't even know if you can see that. See, there's so much stuff here. So let me just give you this overview. Um, so first we find Jesus uh, uh, calling the first of his disciples. Oh no, sorry, last week we had Max um, come up and talk about the early part of Jesus' ministry. And so we find this continuing in chapter 5. And it's here that we see that Jesus called his first disciples and then he was cleansing a leper. After that, Jesus enters into controversy as he comes face to face with the, uh, the uh, teachers of the law. They start to question him regarding fasting and working on the Sabbath. They get more upset when he starts healing. Um, As his ministry grows more and more and people uh, begin following him, he appoints 12 to become apostles and also continues uh, teaching the masses. In Luke 6, we see the calling of the 12, and I want to end my time focusing on that calling. Uh, and then we'll also find Jesus' Sermon on the Plains in chapter 6. So we have a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Plains here. So we got, we got a lot to cover, so let's just get into it. So, let's talk about the early ministry, with Jesus calling the first disciples. This is verses 5, 1 through 11. I'm not going to read all of this. I think if I did that, <laughs> I would have a whole room of people just nodding off. So instead, I'm going to try to summarize uh, what we see here. Uh, So this first section is when Jesus called his first disciples. Um, He had already gained uh, a a pretty big following after his baptism uh, with John the Baptist, and one of those followers was Andrew. Andrew was the brother of Peter, and when Jesus approached uh, the lake of Genesaret, that's where Peter was. He had just come back from a, a long night of fishing where he was quite unsuccessful. He was tired, but he knew who Jesus was. And Jesus goes up to Peter, and he says, uh, uh, can I get in your boat, and can you put your boat out a little bit? I want to teach um, my, my followers. And so uh, Peter agreed, and Christ did that for a couple of reasons. The first reason is when he's standing on the boat, and he's across water, his voice, when it hits the water, will carry a lot farther. So he can reach a lot more people. You know, he didn't have these fancy microphones back then, so he needed more natural ways to to uh, get his voice to, um, to go out farther. The other reason is because he had a plan for Peter. So Christ does his teaching, and when he finishes, he tells Peter, hey, I want you to uh, go out into the lake, and I want you to cast your nets into the deep water. So Peter, he's a fisherman, right? He's like, are, are you serious? He's like, Do you know what time of day it is right now? It's the middle of the day. And nobody casts their nets in the middle of the day, for one, let alone in deep water. You will catch nothing. And so, in his mind, he's like, Who is this carpenter to think that he knows how to fish? I know how to fish, and I have not caught anything. But he listens. And they go out into the water, and he casts his net. And he pulls in the biggest catch that he has ever caught. So big, in fact, that his boat could not bear the weight of that catch. So he calls his partners over. Come, come, help me, help me. This boat comes over, cannot bear the weight. Two boats that had been fishing through the night and caught nothing were now practically sinking because of their catch. When Jesus or when Peter discovered this, oh my gosh, he fell on his face because he recognized his mind and, and his heart was in the wrong place and he knew who he was standing in front of and he, he was just humbled and he asked Jesus, please go away from me. I, I do not deserve to be in your presence. So did Jesus go away? Absolutely not. Jesus instead said, hey Pete, I want you to follow me. And at the same time, uh, uh, James and John, his, his fishing partners, they said, hey, we're going to get on that same boat. We're going to follow you too. Okay, so then we go to the next section where Jesus is cleansing a leper. So he had an encounter with a, a leper, and it was a man. He, he needed things to change. So leprosy was a, like a general category of the Jewish people, and it's used to describe a variety of skin diseases. So if you fast forward to today, uh, even with all of the advances in uh, medical and science that we have, there's still about 10 million people in the world that suffer from leprosy. So it's a pretty big issue. So in that time, one of the jobs of the priest was to examine a person to see if they were a leper. If that determination was made, this individual had to be isolated and they could not return to normal society until they were de- declared clean because leprosy is uh, it's something that is contagious. So this man was required by Jewish law to keep his distance from everybody, but he was willing to break the law because he knew about this man named Jesus. So he went to Jesus, and he humbled himself before Christ and asked for healing. And so Jesus... He, he healed him. And it was an example of how Jesus is, has always been a friend of the outcast. You see so many examples in Scripture where Jesus is finding himself speaking with people that you wouldn't normally find, um, like preachers of the law, speaking to. He broke those molds, and it was fantastic. Okay, so we, we get through this, and now we enter into controversy. Because up until this time, Luke hasn't talked at all about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. Jesus hasn't had an encounter yet that was recorded in Scripture. Until now. Now we get to the healing of the paralytic. So, it's here that we, we first meet the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So they're elders of the temple, much like I'm an elder of this church. And it was their responsibility to protect the, their people from being led astray by false teachers and false prophets in the same manner that we would hear. We would not want to have false teaching um, come at, at, this, uh, at this pulpit. So we want to protect that as well. So I understand why they would want to uh, learn more about Jesus. When John the Baptist was doing all of his work, they actually went and, and watched John the Baptist to make sure that he wasn't doing anything uh, that he shouldn't have been. And now they hear about this Jesus of Nazareth, and they want to know, what about this guy? So this set of verses, it kind of highlights an amazing friendship that existed between the paralytic and his friends. So if you're not familiar with the story, uh, this is a paralytic, can't walk. He's got some friends that hear about Jesus, and so they put him on a mat, and they pick up that mat, and they carry him all the way to where Jesus is at. Now when they get there, what they find is a huge crowd of spectators. Because everybody wants to see Jesus. They want to hear his teaching. They want to experience the miracle. They, and they want to bring their own people to um, get this healing. So they find they just they can't get close enough to Jesus. But they are determined. So they find a way. And they go up to the top of the house that Jesus is in. And they start peeling away at the house, the roof. Tearing the roof apart. Now imagine you're Jesus, and you're sitting here and you're talking to these people, and you're and you're doing your teaching. And you see the roof. The light starts coming out of the roof, and then the light gets bigger and bigger, and the hole gets wider. And then, oh, is is that a mat? Is is that a man that is being hoisted down from the ceiling? And then they see he sees him there. Now, obviously, it's sinful to go in and tear somebody's house apart. So Jesus, he uh, he was so he admired them so much for their faith that he said, I forgive you of your sins. Oh, man. The Pharisees hear this, and they're like, what did you just say? You can't forgive people of sins. Only God can forgive people of sins. And, and Jesus knew their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. And so he said... So he stands up, and he goes to the paralytic, and he tells him, take your mat and walk away. You have been healed. And so they got to experience the full power of Christ in that moment. And, of course, they were afraid. Then we get to the next section, where Jesus calls Levi. Uh, So Levi, also referred to as Matthew, wrote the book of Matthew. Uh, uh, Jesus calls him from his tax collector booth. He accomplished three things with that calling. Number one, he saved that lost soul, because Levi was was truly lost. Number two, he added a new disciple to his growing crowd that was following him. And number three, he opened up opportunity, because Levi had many tax collector friends. And at that time, the tax collector was known as a publican. Uh, so these are people that would sit in the toll booth and they would force travelers as they would go down the road to pay duties on merchandise that they brought with them. Now, since the tax rates weren't always very clear, uh, it was easy for this individual to be corrupt. So even, even if Levi was honest, people still didn't like Levi. They distasted him because he worked for the Gentiles. And so he was just no, somebody that people didn't like. So it is no wonder when Christ said, follow me, that he immediately, (laughs) I'm done with this. I am ready to go. So he had a future now. Now we talk about the next interaction with the Pharisees. And this is a question about fasting. So the Pharisees love to challenge Jesus any opportunity they get. So here we go. They notice that uh, Jesus and his followers don't fast. And they're like... uh, John the Baptist had followers, and they fasted. You know, our followers um, that follow us Pharisees, uh, they fast. What's up with you guys? How come you guys don't do any fasting? So Jesus chose to answer this with a story, as he often does. And he related it to the bridegroom. So what Jesus said is, you know, when you go to a wedding and there's a bridegroom there, do, do you fast at a wedding? Of course not when you're at a wedding, what you, you're going to celebrate, right? You're going to enjoy that time because the bridegroom is here. And Jesus said, there is a time to fast, but it is not now. Now is the time to celebrate. And then he gave him a couple of other uh, parables. He talked about sewing new uh, clothing onto old garments, and he talked about putting new wine into old wineskins, and how that's just It's not okay to do that. The wineskins will burst with the new wine, and the the new garment will tear away from the old garment. It just doesn't make sense. So what he was trying to explain to the Pharisees is, you are the old garment, and you are the old wineskin. So it's time to get new wineskins and new garments. It's time for a change. So then we get further along, and we see a talk about the Sabbath. Sabbath. At this point, Jesus had been teaching and healing for well over a year. The multitudes that were following him were just growing um, and growing and growing. So this meant um, he needed to start organizing his followers and and make a a formal declaration regarding the state of his kingdom. So in chapter 6, it's about establishing new things. The new Sabbath, a new nation, and a new blessing in the new spiritual kingdom. So chapter 6 opens with the Pharisees again attacking Jesus and his followers. This time, he, they were being attacked because they were rubbing the heads of grain together and then eating the grain. And the Pharisees are like, well, that's threshing. That's work. You can't do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus is, he pointed them to the story of David and the priests of Nob and how David and his Companions, they ate the consecrated bread that was meant for the priest. Um, and because uh, David was above the law, uh, Jesus was proclaiming, I also am, am above the law. So the, I, have, uh, I am Lord over the Sabbath. I have authority even over matters of the law. Obviously, this is something that the Pharisees just couldn't stand for. So they, were, they began their plotting. Now we talk about the man with the withered hand. Okay, so... You're probably not going to believe this. But the Pharisees are at it again. This time, it's another Sabbath. And they think, oh, we can trap Jesus now. Because there's a guy with a withered hand. And how can he not attempt to heal this guy? And the minute he tries, healing is obviously work. Bam! We got him. So, he recognizes what they're going to do. So what he says is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And then, much like the man with leprosy from before, he asked the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand, and he healed him. So now we move into the appointment of the 12 apostles. Now, this I want to spend some time with after I finish this summary, but uh, let me just say this much. Uh, By this time, Jesus had many disciples. You know, a lot of times we hear about the 12 disciples, but there were many disciples following, right? Disciple is just really, it's a learner or somebody who's an apprentice. So if you're not familiar with that term, that's what it is. So he had many people that were learning from him. Uh, So some of them chose to follow him. Others, um, he chose. Uh, But they just wanted to be near him and experience his teaching and his miracles. So what I'm saying is he had a number of choices. With all the people that were following him, there were a lot to choose from, right? Uh, And he handpicked the 12. Now, it wasn't easy. Uh, Before he made that choice, he was up all night praying to his father and and asking for guidance and, and making sure that what they had set in place, the plan that they had, you know, just... He just wanted to have that time before he made that very serious decision. You know, because he knows what's happening here. He knows the commitment that he's got to make, even to the point that he knows why he has to pick Judas Iscariot. And it's a tough decision, but we'll talk more about that. In the meantime, let's move on and get through this chapter. So now Jesus is uh, ministering to a great multitude of people. Uh, This is what's referenced as a Sermon on the Plain. Uh, it's a little bit different than the Sermon on the Mount because in in this one it talks about him doing his sermon on level ground, so that's that's the plains area, um, and this this version is a little bit shorter than what's in Matthew because it takes out the Jewish parts. That's the interpretation of the Jewish law, so smaller version. Uh, he had many there that were there uh, that uh, that he he taught. And uh, not only that, he had visitors from Judea and Jerusalem, even way up north in Tyre and Sidon. These people came down just to hear Jesus talk. And what did he talk about? He opens with the Beatitudes. So, the Beatitudes is kind of a, I don't know, it's a, it's a church word, right? It's like, <laughs> what, is it? what, is, what is that? So, if, uh, if you don't know, you're trying to understand, or you're looking around, or opening up your Google, what, what is this? Let me let me help you out. Um, the word comes from a Latin word that is uh, uh, called uh, "beatis," and "beatis" means blessed or happy. So, when you think about the beatitudes, you think about the blessings, and so you notice they all start with "blessed are those." That's why they're called beatitudes. Um, so I'm going to try to get through uh, these uh, quickly to help you understand more about it. The first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So poor in spirit, uh, that's, uh, that's a phrase that means to be humble and to have humility. You know, If you think about the Pharisees, definitely not poor in spirit. They were very proud. And how difficult is it to try to connect with somebody who thinks they already know? Right, you just you can't because they, they they believe I already know the answer. There's nothing more that you can tell me, but the poor in spirit are so open to hearing this good news, so they are blessed. The next one: Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, there is a time that uh, I have a testimony for this congregation that I will give to you that deals with mourning, and I will tell you I completely understand the blessing that comes from mourning. And I, at some point, I'm going to share that testimony, and hopefully you guys will understand what it means to be blessed through mourning. The next is, blessed are the meek, so they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek sounds like meek, you know, like, you know, like weak, you know. Kind of rhymes with weak, but there's a, there's a meaning to it. Uh, meek people are gentle and kind. You know, you think about gentleness. Gentleness is how you treat others. It's like an active grace, right? It's being sensitive, having kindness. Meekness is a passive grace. It is how you respond to how others treat you. So that level of meekness is um, the people that will inherit the earth. And, and if you recall, Moses was considered the meekest person on earth. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That desire for justice and moral perfection leads one to fulfillment of that desire. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. There's a lot of different ways to classify mercy. Um, There's there's a couple here that I'll talk about. One is corporal uh, corporal works of mercy, and one is spiritual works of mercy. So if you think of corporal, it's things like feeding the hungry, um, giving drinks to those that are thirsty, Clothing those that have no clothes, um, sheltering the homeless, comforting the imprisoned, visiting the sick, or burying the dead. Spiritual work is like admonishing sinners, uh, instructing the uninformed, uh, counseling the doubtful, uh, comforting the sorrowful, being patient with those who've made mistakes or in error, forgiving offenses, uh, and then praying um, over, over our congregation. Number six, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. To be pure of heart means to be free of all intentions and self-seeking desires. It means that you are seeking the will of God. You're not seeking your own will. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. They not only lead peaceful lives, but they try to bring that peace and that friendship to others. So they are blessed. And then blessed are... Are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus said many times that those who follow him, you will be persecuted. Uh, If they persecute me, they will persecute you. John 15. But the Lord promises his disciples that their reward will be in the kingdom of heaven. Your faith in Christ is not meant to mean. I'm going to be blessed forever. I'm going to receive all, I'm going to get rich. I'm going to have all these different things. Your faith in Christ means you have an understanding of your eternal destination and that you start that path of, of knowing that you're going to be challenged because uh, believing in Christ means as he was persecuted, we will be as well. So he, he makes sure that we know that. So right after he talks about all these blessings, he enters into the woes. And all four woes that are listed here, they all have a common truth. Uh, you take what you want from life, and you pay for it. Uh, if you want immediate wealth, if you want fullness, laughter, popularity, you can get it, um, but there's a price to pay. And that that's all you get. So Jesus didn't say that these things were wrong. Um, he said that being satisfied with them, it's its, its own judgment. So H.H. H. Farmer wrote that, to Jesus, the terrible thing about having wrong values in life and pursuing wrong things is not that you're doomed to bitter d- disappointment. It's that you're not. Not that, uh, not that you do not achieve what you want, but that you do. So if your heart's in the wrong place, you could still have the, uh, the worldly success, but that's it. There's, there's nothing beyond that. The next thing he talks about is loving your enemies. So this is a whole long—I invite you to read this part, um, 627 through 36, because it's a difficult lesson. Um, And honestly, (laughs) we really could spend a lot more time on this. Um, But it's summed up in this way. How do you treat your enemies? you got to love them, you have to do good for them, and you pray for them. Because honestly, hatred, it only breeds more hatred, right? So James writes in chapter 1, verse 20, For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So, love your enemies. Then we move on to judging others. So, this verse is a good reminder. You reap what you sow and in the amount that you sow. If you judge others, you yourself will be judged. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. And if you condemn you will be condemned. Jesus, not, he's not talking about eternal judgment, but the way we are treated in this life. If we, if we live to give, God will see to it that we receive. Uh, if we live to only get, then God will see to it that we lose. Um, the principle applies not only to the giving of money, but also to the giving of ourselves and our ministries and the things that we do uh, for this church. Uh, so verse 41 and 42, it, it was... I'm trying to imagine in my head. This is when Jesus is talking about the log in your eye and how you're trying to fix the speck in your, your brother's eye. I can only imagine what the people were, were thinking as he was saying this. I'm sure there was a lot of people laughing when Jesus has this description of this giant log that is in your eye and you're like, hey, um, you got this speck over here. Can I, can I get that speck out? So it's a, you know, it's a lesson to us that fix ourselves first, right? We, we want to make sure that um, it gets back into the whole judging um, philosophy. And then he talks about a tree and its fruit. And basically here, uh, fruit is always true to character. You can't grow an apple tree and get oranges, right? Just like uh, a good person produces good fruit, doesn't produce evil. Um, now, it's not to say that believers don't sin, because we do. Uh, But the witness of our words and our works is consistently good to the glory of God, and that's what we should be focused on. So in terms of ministry, uh, servants of God who are faithful will reproduce themselves uh, in the people who are in turn true to the Lord. So the last part of of chapter 6, building your house on the rock. Jesus uses an analogy of a builder, who builds on solid ground or shifting sand. You know, all of us are builders, so we have to be careful to build wisely. To build on a rock simply means that we obey what God commands in his word. To build on the sand means that we give Christ lip service. Uh, We don't obey his will. It may look as if we're building a strong house, but it has no foundation, so it cannot last. What is that foundation? It's found in, in Scripture, Right? The more that you pour your heart and your life into the scripture, the more your foundation is strengthened. And that allows when you start to do the work of building, you are building on solid ground. Uh, so not everybody who professes to know the Lord has a real experience of salvation. I, uh, I attended a pastor training these past couple of days that was held here uh, at the church. And um, the speaker there said, you know, there's a lot of preachers in hell. And he said, uh, because they, you'll have people that it, they appear on the surface to be saying what needs to be said and doing what needs to be done. But, you know, it's God that's judging your heart. So it's a challenge. It's a real challenge for all of us. Uh, if you are not saved by faith, you have no foundation in your life. When difficulties come, instead of glorifying the Lord, people turn and desert him. Why, God, why are you doing this to me? You know, why are you giving me this test? I thought you loved me. Instead of recognizing that, that trial is that strengthening point in your life. It is going to help you to become a much stronger person than you are today. So then you, in James 1, it talks about consider it pure joy when you face those trials because it's the opportunity for you to be uh, uh, even greater in your knowledge of Christ. So uh, that's two chapters. So, give me one second here. Okay. This is a lot to, a lot to talk about. So, that was a, a lot for about 30 minutes. So, sorry for the sprint, but I needed enough time at the end to get back to the topic that I want to focus on, which is the calling of the 12. So, let's, uh, let's get back into that. So, as a reminder, this is, oops, this is what I showed you earlier. This is what um, we had, the scripture that was read today. And it's talking about the twelve um, disciples uh, that uh, that Christ called in to be apostles. So uh, these are mentioned in Luke, but also in Mark, Matthew, and Acts. The order is different, and the names are different. This can get a little bit confusing if you're not familiar with uh, the reasons why. So let me just uh, help to reduce that confusion. So I found this table, and I can't even read it from here. So I'm assuming you can't read it from there. So uh, But what you'll find is this here is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. So these are the four books of the Bible where the 12 apostles are mentioned. So uh, in Acts, there's only 11 listed because by that time Judas Iscariot had already hanged himself. Uh, The apostles are broken up into three groups of four. At the top of each group is the leader of that group. So if you look at the first group, It's uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So those were the fishermen, right? And Peter was the leader of that group. And we hear about Peter all throughout the Scripture. So he was definitely a leader. Uh, He was um, a little impulsive at times, but he was a leader of that group. Uh, The next set of four had Philip as their leader. Uh, Joining Philip is Bartholomew, also referred to as Nathaniel. Um, And he was a friend of Philip. And then you had Thomas which many of us would know as the Doubting Thomas. You know, when Christ came back, it was Thomas that was like, hey, I want proof that you are actually the Christ and not just a ghost. Um, And then Matthew or Levi, uh, the tax collector or the publican. Uh, In the last list, we have James, uh, son of Alphaeus. He was the leader of that group. Then you had Simon the Zealot. Um, So he was a religious, you know, the Zealots were religious uh, fanatics um, of that time. And you see Judas Iscariot appear three times, right? Not in the book of Acts. Uh, and then we get a little bit of confusion here. Uh, Matthew 10.3 refers to the disciple, the, that fourth one in that third group, as Labaius. And then Mark refers to him as Thaddeus. And then in Luke, in Acts, he's referred to as Judas, son of James. So it's like, what? Who, who is this? Is it? more than one? Or what is this? Um, so let me explain the difference in the names. Uh, in ancient times, a person could have two or three different names. Because remember, there's the Greek language and there's the Hebrew language. So they may have a Hebrew name, they may have a Greek name. And also remember that Christ had a habit of renaming people. So, um, but anyway, uh, sometimes people are also known by their occupational title. So it is not unusual to see the same person named many different ways. Um, so, but the fact that the, um, the names are consistent in the book, each book, shows that it's not a different person. So it's the same person there. Okay, so now we got the names right. So now my next question for you is, how old were these apostles? I mean, you look at this painting. You know, this is a very famous painting. This is The Last Supper by Leonardo da, uh, da Vinci. I can't tell you how many times I rehearsed this that I would say Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> so I'm very happy I said that right, and then very sad that I just told you my mistake. Um, but anyway, uh, it could it, you could make an assumption that these apostles were older men, right? Some big beards, gray beards, um, gorgeous bald head. I, I mean, it's you know you see these things here, so hey, they're probably pretty old. So. Let's figure out a little bit more about it. So it's not specified in Scripture, but what we do know is Jesus was about 30 years old when he started his public ministry. And then what we also know is in Jewish culture, disciples or the students were generally younger than their teacher. And we know that many of the disciples were fishermen. So that gives us at least a marker Fishermen that worked full-time had to at least be teenagers. So now you could at least say that the ones that were following weren't younger than about 13, right, because they had to be able to be old enough to have that profession. Um, and then discipleship training under a rabbi, that typically began for, um, for the young men at around age 13 to 15. So we have that information. Now we, we go fast forward into um, the, the book of John or we look at John's life, the, um, the Apostle John. He passed away 60 years after walking with Jesus. So he died in exile on the island of Patmos. So if you think 60 years later and he died an old man, if he was 15, that would have you know, put him at 75 at his death. That seems reasonable. If he was 30, I, you know, 90 years old that's pretty old but but still he died an old an old man so what we can come to a conclusion of is these these uh, apostles were anywhere between 13 and 30 years old now i want you to know that and i want to spend time on this because there's so many times that we'll read in the scripture and we'll see oh why are these apostles just not understanding this are you kidding me you know, we have the advantage of having the whole book. So, so we, can, we know the stories. We, we know the, the parable, and then Christ explains it to us so it's, uh, it's clear to us. So we can look at it like, how do you not know this stuff? Um, but they were young. You know, they, they were learning and growing and maturing. And, um, and so I just, you know, cut them a little slack. Uh, so the next thing is, my next question is, why were these men chosen? Um, so what, what is special about them? Think for a minute. You have a, an unpredictable fisherman. That's a Peter. You have a man with a possible bias against Nazareth. That was Bartholomew or Nathaniel. Uh, you have a fanatic Jewish nationalist in Simon the Zealot. You have a despised tax collector in Matthew or Levi. You have this skeptic pessimist and the Doubting Thomas. You have two sons of thunder with explosive tempers. James and John, they were just, you know, uh, they, they were the ones that even started the concept of who's the greatest, right? They, they were, that's the kind of people that they were. And then you had this covetous betrayer in Judas Iscariot. This is, these are eight of the 12 that Christ chose to be apostles and, and and you know they had a mission and a commission and he selected them. So at the same time they were ordinary, right? There's nothing real special about these men. They were just regular guys and young at that. Um, so why would he have selected that group of people when he had a huge following of disciples? How is it that they are the ones that were selected? So it brings up um, a pretty important question. Um, why did he choose you and me? You know, it, it is no mistake that we are in this room together. If you are a Christian, you've been selected. If you are in here because you are curious about who this Christ is, God is choosing you. He's brought you here to help you understand that he's had his eye on you. So please continue to study. Please continue to learn and grow. Talk to your Christian family about what it means to have an everlasting relationship with Christ. If you are already a Christian, we have a role and a responsibility. If you consider disciple is just a learner, right? We need to be doers of the word, not just hearers. We have something that we have to do. So, uh, there's a reason your company brought you here. You know, you, either the husband or the wife is, a, is professional in the field, and you have the talents that are needed to work in that occupation. So that was the means to get you here. But God wants you here. He has you in Thailand for a reason. And if you found that reason and you're serving him, then hallelujah and God bless all of you that are serving. That is wonderful, and I hope you feel that blessing. If you are not serving yet... This, this would be my challenge to you. For some of you, your time here is coming to an end. You know, every summer we turn, and we have people that are going to their next kingdom assignment. So I would challenge you to think, what can you do now before that next kingdom assignment to make sure that your time here in Thailand, you can clearly see God working in your life? And you know the reason why he brought you to Thailand. And it may be that uh, um, you've been doing it all along. And like I said, if you are, fantastic. Uh, If you haven't, it is not too late. Get involved, do something, and do something for the Lord. You know, don't do something because you want to be a good person and you want to go and do a service project. Uh, Do it because you want to see God. And do it because you want to feel moved by the fact that he chose you. Out of every opportunity, every way that you could have gone the wrong way, God said, it's you that I want. And show him that you appreciate that you have been called. So all of these slides, uh, they have um, uh, the the 12 apostles. They have some examples of 12 all throughout the Bible. Twelve and seven in the Bible are numbers that denote perfection. We see uh, many examples of this uh, where in Scripture, um, uh, these references that you see here, a lot of these come from the book of Revelation, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, that's that's uh, when he called the 12 apostles. It was no mistake that 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, right? There's a lot of uh, different cases of that. Also, 12 was important for things like, think about uh Jairus' daughter, And if you don't know that story, uh, Christ raised that girl from the dead. She was 12 years old. Think about Christ in the temple. When he first started preaching in the temple, any ideas on how old he was? He was 12 years old. So there's some relevance to 12. So my question to you is, why was Jesus great? You know, I've talked about in this series that who's the greatest. I'm going to tell you why he's great. Um, He was great because he chose ordinary men to accomplish an extraordinary assignment. And the good news is that he's also chosen you. He's also chosen me. And it's up to us to answer that calling um, on our life. Oh, and uh, for my buddy Andy Lamb over there. Nihao, uh, gao xiao, and I'll tell you later what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, so, uh, in in my uh, training yesterday, one thing that uh, that I learned is how to conclude a sermon. Um, the the pastor that was preaching there said, a lot of times what happens is the pastor says in conclusion, and then we go through another thirty minutes of going through all the things that the pastor just talked about, and people are like, oh my god. Are you serious? So I've learned how to conclude a sermon. So in conclusion, let us pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It's just, it's so rich and has so much meaning to us. And I just ask that today uh, that you were here with us and the message that you wanted to have delivered, that it was successful and that it's penetrating each of our hearts, uh, myself included, that um, we take another step and that we continue to grow in the knowledge and understanding of who you are. Lord, we love you, uh, we honor you, and and it is our prayer that uh, we can continue to worship you in ways that continue to bring you glory. And as always, Lord, we lift these things up in your son's precious and holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.